if you wanted to detect and diagnose Alzheimer's disease or assess disease progression, what aspects of cognition would you focus on? In other words, what capabilities would you test to decide if someone is indeed experiencing cognitive decline, or if they had Alzheimer's disease or another type of dementia? And what tools could you use? Stay with me to hear about the abstracts dedicated to specific cognitive domains in the Clinical Assessment of Cognitive Impairment, published in February 2022. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Oh, hello, hello! This is Sarah Dwedi, bringing you some updates on the research on clinical assessment in Alzheimer's disease from the comfort of my home desk in Vancouver in beautiful British Columbia. To you, lovely listener, wherever you are in the world. I did my master's work on amyloid beta aggregation kinetics and neuroinflammation, and I'm now focusing on a more clinical path in medical school, which is why I find this episode so interesting. I will be covering abstracts published in February 2022, where researchers try to develop or refine clinical assessment tools. You may have noticed that I said I'm covering abstracts, not papers. This is what we do at Aminder. We download all the abstracts that contain the word Alzheimer, sort them into over 38 distinct categories to shape these episodes, then we summarize them for you in these flash news-like podcasts. If a paper catches your interest, you can find the full citation in our numbered bibliography linked in the show notes. The goal is not to replace the process of reading and critically appraising these papers, no. But we want to help you keep up with what's out there so you don't have to do those tedious searches on PubMed or skim through hundreds of titles and abstracts. I have to thank our sorting team for processing over 600 primary papers to categorize them by aim and methods, and that would be Christy, Ben, Eden, Vrishali, Kira, and Ellen Rowe. Our team is big, international, and made of wonderful scientists who deeply care about science communication. If this resonates with you, consider joining us. Get in touch on social media on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. Give it some thought. But for now, you did come here to hear about clinical assessment in Alzheimer's disease, and I shall serve that which was promised. This episode is dedicated to abstracts where researchers look at neurocognitive domains to better detect Alzheimer's disease or distinguish it from other forms of dementia. So this will be particularly relevant to you if you do any work on clinical assessment or if you're interested in neurology or geriatrics. In the next episode, part two, I'll be covering abstracts that take on a more general approach to cognitive assessment. So those that don't focus on a specific neurocognitive domain, as well as research that addresses limitations and special consideration in diagnostics, such as exclusion criteria and educational background. So make sure you'll look for the next episode on our site. It's being released at the same time as uh, part one. If you're new to the field and are wondering what I mean by neurocognitive domains, here's a brief introduction. When we talk about cognition, especially in neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, we may think about learning and memory. 
which are indeed very important aspects of our cognitive functioning, and functioning in general. This includes working memory, short-term memory, long-term memory. Then we further categorize long-term memory into implicit, like procedural and priming, or explicit, like declarative and semantic memory. This becomes relevant when we look at specific subfields in the hippocampus, for example, what type of memory is affected or spared in injury. In Alzheimer's disease, we typically see a decline in working memory and long-term declarative memory. With this said, cognitive functioning is not limited to learning and memory. There are five other neurocognitive domains in the DSM-5 classification. Language is one of them, and for this we can test someone's ability to find words, name objects, or even their speech fluency in grammar. A third domain is executive function, and this is important for planning and decision-making. And then four, uh, we have perceptual motor function, like visual-spatial perception and motor coordination. Uh, five, attention. So how can we selectively focus on tasks or objects? And last is social cognition, like how we recognize and regulate our emotions. By the way, these domains are not really numbered. I just thought it would be easier to present them this way. This classification is based on the DSM-5 approach, and you can read more on it in the paper Classifying Neurocognitive Disorders, the DSM-5 Approach by Parminder and colleagues, published in 2014 in Nature Reviews Neurology. We can test these domains separately or together with assessment tools that follow an interview style or involve tasks like drawing or moving or recall. The first section of this episode is dedicated to learning and memory and gathers four abstracts from the month of February 2022. Let's get started. When someone has memory concerns, you may hear terms being thrown around interchangeably. Dementia, mild cognitive impairment, amnesia, Alzheimer's disease. However, they are definitely not the same. Dementia is an umbrella term for a syndrome that manifests as a loss in cognition that interferes with our functioning. This is not only trouble with learning and remembering, but also it can manifest as problems with language or reasoning. These impairments can have a different etiologies, and the most common one is Alzheimer's disease, claiming 60 to 80% of dementia cases. This is perhaps the reason why there may be some confusion around the distinction between them. People with Alzheimer's typically have trouble with memory that affects their function, so dementia. But not everyone with dementia has Alzheimer's. Other causes of dementia include vascular problems such as repeated strokes or Parkinson's dementia, which develops with time in people with Parkinson's disease, or frontotemporal dementia, where the pathology is seen in the frontal and temporal lobes and therefore affects personality and behavior. Mild cognitive impairment, on the other hand, refers to impairments in cognition and not always memory that don't necessarily affect function. Mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, presents itself with different pathologies, and the one type of MCI you may hear about the most in the context of Alzheimer's disease is amnestic MCI, or AMCI, versus non-amnestic MCI, which affects cognitive skills other than memory. In amnestic MCI, the patient is less able to form new memories, so we're talking about anterograde amnesia, without a big impact on their other cognitive or social abilities. 10 to 15% of them go on to develop Alzheimer's disease, so in research you will often see AMCI being described as prodromal Alzheimer's disease, 
And you can understand how accurately detecting AMCI can be very useful in defining a prognosis for a patient and help plan for management. And this is the focus of the first abstract of this section, titled Declarative Learning, Priming and Procedural Learning Performances, Comparing Individuals with Amnestic Mild Cognitive Impairment and Cognitively Unimpaired Older Adults, published in the Journal of the International Neuropsychological Society by DeWitt, first author, and last author is Smith. And this is the product of a collaboration between different uh, schools in the U.S. and the Netherlands, including University of Florida, uh, Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, uh, Vincent van Gogh Institute for Psychiatry, Red Bull University Medical Center, and Donders Center for Cognition. Alzheimer's disease is known to affect the hippocampus, which is important for declarative learning. However, other types of memory, such as procedural and repetition priming, do not rely solely on the hippocampus and can indeed function independently of the seahorse-like structure. These processes can help bypass deficits in declarative learning when the hippocampus is injured, like in Alzheimer's disease. The authors of this paper compare a total of about 150 cognitively healthy people with those with amnestic MCI in measures of declarative memory, conceptual repetition priming, and procedural learning. To do this, they relied on between-group effect sizes and Bayes factors, or BFs. They hypothesized that the biggest difference would be on the level of declarative learning. What do you think? The results were consistent with their expectations, and they did find that declarative learning was the biggest distinguishing factor between amnestic MCI and cognitively healthy participants, followed by conceptual repetition. This suggests that conceptual repetition priming is affected in those with amnestic MCI. As for procedural learning, there was an in-group variability and minor differences between the groups, suggesting that this process is undisturbed in amnestic MCI. The authors speculate that we can develop behavioral treatment approaches that harness procedural learning in those with amnestic MCI since this process seems to be spared. So that was it for the first abstract of this section. And before we dive into the next study, I wanted to give you some background on the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, otherwise known as ADNI. It comes up in almost every one of our episodes. You'll hear it mentioned in the methods as a source of neurocognitive or imaging data, and will also often cover papers published by members of this big group. I did give this very same introduction in the August 2021 series, so I apologize if you already heard it. ADNI started back in 2004 as a five-year initiative that aimed at detecting Alzheimer's disease as early as possible, tracking its progression with biomarkers and supporting research that targets AD at every level, diagnostics, prevention, and treatment. They seem to also have an open science policy worldwide. Some of their funding comes from the federal government, and some is raised from private companies. Since the inception of this initiative, there have been multiple multi-center ADNI studies, with the latest one starting in 2017, aiming to finish in uh, this year, 2022. And with this, I present to you paper number two, Validation of and Demographically Adjusted Normative Data for the Learning Ratio Derived from Raveled in Robustly Intact Older Adults. It was published in Archives of Clinical Neuropsychology 
by Hammers, Spencers, and Apostolova, who are part of the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, and are affiliated with Indiana University School of Medicine and Mental Health Services in the U.S. This is a very good year for Hammers and Spencers. They recently published a paper titled Preliminary Validation of the Learning Ratio for the HVLTR and BVMTR in Older Adults, and I covered it in our September 21 series. And that's when I first learned and introduced the learning ratio. If this is a new term to you, let me explain. Learning can be tracked between appointments to help assess cognitive functioning or decline. One can derive different scores to assess this, such as the learning slope, which is literally the score that you get in an appointment minus your previous score. An alternative to this would be to calculate a learning ratio where you would divide the number of new items that you learned after the first trial by the number of items you have not learned yet. One can assume that the more you learn, the higher the score will be, which reflects your learning. In the abstract I covered back in September, Hammers and Spencers and colleagues found that the learning ratio scores correlated well with standard memory measures and hippocampal volumes, with Alzheimer's disease participants having lower learning ratio scores than the MCI participants. In the present abstract, which is published in February 2022, they propose to apply it in the Ray Auditory Verbal Learning Test, or RAVLT, and test its utility in this context. They use data from the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, or ADNI, from close to 700 participants aged 54 to 89 and cognitively healthy. They compare the learning ratio scores derived from RAVLT to the ones of standard memory measures. They also check how reliable this measure is at 6, 12, and 24 months with demographic adjustments. Here's what they found. Learning ratio scores are consistent with lower performance on other memory tests and seem even better than traditional learning slopes. Specifically, the authors praised its retest reliability and when adjusted for demographic factors, does better in participants who are cognitively healthy than those with mild cognitive impairment. Therefore, learning ratio scores derived from RAVL seem reliable and outperform traditional learning slope calculations, making it a candidate for use in a clinical setting. Now moving away from learning to memory, with abstract number three titled Differential Associations of Visual Memory with Hippocampal Subfields in Subjective Cognitive Decline and Amnestic Mild Cognitive Impairment. It was published in BMC Geriatrics by Huang and Guo, uh, who are affiliated with the Shanghai Jiao Tong University, affiliated Sixth People Hospital, and Fudan University, both in China. We know that the hippocampus is one of the main areas of the brain that are affected in Alzheimer's disease. However, it is tricky and not necessarily routine to look at its structure and content for diagnostic purposes. It would be helpful to have a less invasive proxy for hippocampal integrity, like, let's see, a memory test? Something you can fill in with a pen and paper or a tablet or on the phone. Wouldn't it be great to get an indication of hippocampal insult this way without having to inject the patient with a tracer and book an imaging appointment? In this paper, the authors look into visual memory, pun intended, and how well it correlates with hippocampal subfields in the context of Alzheimer's disease. 
They recruit on average 50 to 60 participants from Shanghai for each of the following categories: subjective memory decline, amnestic MCI, and cognitively healthy adults. They assess visual memory with the following tests: the brief visuospatial memory test revised, pictorial learning test, delayed matching to sample, and paired associates learning. They compare those scores to hippocampal subfields, which they estimated with the free surfer software. They report the different associations between hippocampal subregions and the tests that I listed, and there are a lot of values in this abstract. But I will highlight the ones relevant to amnestic MCI, and I invite you to check the abstract or even the paper itself for the full story. They found that those with amnestic MCI had some atrophy in the CA1 region of the hippocampus, as we would expect, as well as in the molecular layer, subiculum, GCMLDG. CA4 and CA3. The BVMTR immediate recall scores positively correlated with CA1 molecular layer, subiculum, and GCMLDG. This contrasts with the other two groups, as in cognitively healthy and subjective cognitive decline. And these two groups did not show regional atrophy, but showed some correlation between hippocampal subfields. And some of the assessment tools used in the study, especially the delayed matching to sample test, the authors conclude that the pattern of association between different hippocampal subfields and visual memory do differ between those with subjective cognitive decline and amnestic MCI. This may be helpful for prognostics. All right, every month we are fortunate to cover papers that zoom in on a specific population. Based on language, ethnicity, or comorbidities, this is important as performance in these cognitive assessments does heavily rely on things like language competencies, culture, and education level. So hopefully, you can appreciate the value of studies that seek to validate a translation or an approach with these factors in mind. Paper number four is one of those. It was published in Applied Neuropsychology Adult by Satali and Solaki. And it's titled "The Discriminant Validity of Ray Complex Figure Test, or RCFT, in Subjective Cognitive Decline, Mild Cognitive Impairment, Multiple Domain, and Alzheimer's Disease Dementia in Greek Older Adults." It is、uh, the result of a collaboration between different、uh, centers in Greece, namely the Greek Association of Alzheimer's Disease and Related Disorders Rehabilitation Center Anagenesi. And the Center for Interdisciplinary Research and Innovation. This paper follows the previous one very nicely, as we are also looking at distinguishing mild cognitive impairment from subjective cognitive decline using a test for visual memory. The authors administer the Ray Complex Figure Test to over 600 Greek older adults aged 50 to 90, who are either cognitively healthy, have subjective cognitive decline. Multiple domain mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease. They find that the RCFT subtests are pretty good at distinguishing between subjective cognitive decline and mild Alzheimer's disease, but maybe not so good at diagnosing subjective cognitive decline in those with multi-domain mild cognitive impairment. They still recommend it for both the clinical and research settings. If you're interested in validating cognitive assessment tools in the Greek population, 
you should tune in for the next episode, part two, where I'll be covering a paper on the clock drawing test adapted in Greek. For the second section of this episode, we move on to another neurocognitive domain that is instrumental for our functioning as a species. That is language. But first, a few words. I want to take a short break to convince you to join me and the editing team here at Aminder. We are responsible for the high-quality, polished episodes you hear, and our team is looking to grow so that we can cover even more episodes in a month. If you're interested in learning the ropes, send us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. We do have other positions on our team if you're interested in those. I find it to be a rewarding auditory and visual challenge, and I love working behind the scenes to get the best out of our hosts. So if you want to feel like a superhero after editing out mistakes seamlessly, please reach out to me and to the Aminder team. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years. And sadly, no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Welcome back from our break, and let's tackle the next section of this episode where I cluster three papers that address language as one of the neurocognitive domains tested for the assessment of cognitive decline, starting with abstract number five titled Detecting Alzheimer's Disease Using Natural Language Processing of Referential Communication Task Transcripts. It was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by Liu and Zhao, from University of Tennessee and University of Iowa. People with Alzheimer's disease may have trouble with producing speech, but is this a reliable indicator? The authors look at their referential communication tasks, or RCTs, not to confuse with randomized control trials. And in this context, RCTs are a test used to assess someone's ability to choose and verbally code the characteristics of an object during a conversation. To assess the validity of this tool for the detection of Alzheimer's disease, they used contextualized machine learning techniques and transcripts that were manually transcribed. They described two approaches in their classification of these transcripts. One, they used clinically relevant linguistic features, or two, they resort to machine-learned representations which they derive from a state-of-art pre-trained word representations from natural language processing. They also uh, rely on bi-directional encoder representation from transformer-based classification model, or maybe BERT will sound more familiar to you. <laughs> they find that the algorithm for the design transfer learning from natural language processing outperforms the other method. They also find that simplifying the referential communication tasks to a subset of images gives a good accuracy for the detection of Alzheimer's disease, which makes it a promising tool if we want to include speech production in our test batteries. The next abstract also presents a sophisticated tool for the assessment of language skills for the detection of Alzheimer's disease. There'll be abstract number six titled Semantic Feature Extraction Using SBIRT for Dementia Detection. 
It was published by Santander Cruz and Tovar Ariaga in Brain Science. And this is a result of a collaboration between different institutes in Mexico, including Instituto Mexicano del Seguro Social, Universidad Autónoma de Querétaro, and Centro de Investigaciones en Optica. Here, the authors present a way to assess semantic information. They propose the use of the Siamese BERT networks, or SBERT, to compute sentence embeddings. In addition, as classifiers, they also use support vector machine, or SVM, K-nearest neighbors, or KNN, random forest, and an artificial neural network, or ANN. Based on over 500 oral production samples of cognitively healthy NAD participants, they were able to extract 17 features that reflect the following attributes, demographic, lexical, syntactic, and semantic information. They then assessed the validity of this approach by contrasting the results to the MMSE scores. Were they successful in distinguishing AD from control? Well, they found that their methodology compared to the MMSE held an accuracy of 77%, precision of 80%, Recall of also 80%, and an F1 of, guess what, 80% as well. They conclude that their approach outperforms syntax-based methods and the BERT approach, but with the caveat that it is when they rely on linguistic features only. Now, the last paper of this section on language, and also of this episode, also looks at speech production, but with a focus on verbal fluency. Verbal fluency encompasses phonemic and semantic fluency. Semantic fluency refers to how many words a person can say in a given amount of time within a certain category, like how many fruits can you name in one minute, or how many animals. With phonemic fluency, on the other hand, we're looking at how many words one can generate that begin with a certain letter. So if I said, give me as many words as possible that start with an F in one minute, you might say fruit, frog, fabric, feast, fasting, February, and so on. Both verbal fluency tests give us an indication of executive functioning, and this is why the next paper zooms in on phonemic fluency among people with amnestic MCI and Alzheimer's disease. This one is titled, A Simple Counting of Verbal Fluency Errors Discriminates Between Normal Cognition, Mild Cognitive Impairment, and Alzheimer's Disease. It was published in Neuropsychological Development and Cognition, B-Aging, Neuropsychology and Cognition, uh, by Wajman and Zekini, who are affiliated with the Federal University of Sao Paulo and University of Edinburgh. The authors of this paper are interested in the potential for verbal fluency tasks to distinguish between Alzheimer's disease and mild cognitive impairment. They tested different modalities of this test in over 140 participants who are either cognitively healthy, have mild cognitive impairment, or Alzheimer's disease. They found that the phonemic task holds the best correlation of errors to repetition variables in MCI and Alzheimer's. With every error, the odds of having mild cognitive impairment grew by almost 9.9 times, so almost an order of magnitude, and for Alzheimer's, the odds grew 12.2 times. They report a test sensitivity for the detection of MCI of 67.6% and a specificity of 94.3%. As for the detection of Alzheimer's, the sensitivity was higher at 78% and the specificity was comparable to the one in MCI 
at 94.3% as well. Remember that sensitivity means how good is this test at detecting the disease. And for specificity, this refers to how good the test is at excluding those who do not have the disease. Therefore, phonemic tasks as part of the verbal fluency tasks can help in detecting mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease. And that is it. Thank you for sticking around till the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed hosting it. You can find the bibliography for this in the show notes, kindly generated by Lara Ombasi. If you go to our site, aminder.com, and click on bibliography at the top of the page, you'll be redirected to our drive where we keep all past bibliographies. We update it as we release episodes and also add the bibliographies for the topics that we do not cover. Every month, we download all the abstracts with the word Alzheimer, categorize them in over 38 categories, and assign those categories to hosts depending on their area of interest and expertise. Naturally, many topics do not get covered, and we would love to recruit more people who care about SciComm and want an extra incentive to keep up with the news in their fields. Is that you? So if you study Alzheimer's disease and want to try your hand at podcasting, please get in touch. You don't have to host episodes to join us. You could help with the audio editing, which is super easy. No experience needed to join the team for that. And it's a cool skill to acquire. We also have room in our bibliography team, sorting, advertising, funding, and more. Aside from the experience, you also get to interact with scientists from all around the world. We have team members from six different time zones working from Canada, the US, Germany, the UK, Turkey, and working consistently to bring you episodes three times a week. We do take breaks between months to recharge and sort papers, so if you don't see an episode come up on a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday, just know that we're just taking a break. So thank you to the amazing team that we have. Special thanks to Alan Kosh for ensuring the internal management of our enterprise and who somehow finds the time to review my audio editing. The beautiful music you hear now is the making of Anusha Kamesh, who is one of our regular hosts and also manages our editing team. You can find her work on AK Music on YouTube or on SoundCloud under her name. Know that we all do this on a voluntary basis on top of school, research, jobs, our personal life, and we're super proud of where we got. However, we also know there's always room for improvement. So make sure you let us know if there's anything we can do better. If you like what we do, don't go back. Hearing from you is the fuel that keeps us going. You can help us by leaving a review on your podcast app or giving us a shout out on social media. We're active on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Make sure you connect with us. I'll be waiting to hear from you. I hope you found this podcast useful and accessible. Until next time, 